Also, if you want stuff to sound good, you got to have dynamic range. I mean, you start losing low end and stuff just starts smashing together. And yeah, even if it's not like distortion as you would think, you know, what that word implies. Mm -hmm. I mean, digital clipping is digital clipping. Um, You call it whatever you want, but it hurts your ears after a while. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Today's episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is sponsored by Roswell Pro Audio, maker of handcrafted microphones in California. Inspired design and impeccable attention to detail will help you capture a gorgeous vintage sound without the vintage price tag. Check out their beautiful line of microphones at roswellproaudio.com. You may already know that using true analog gear is one of the best ways to create a great record. Yet increasingly, we live in a digital world, recording and mixing inside the computer. So what if you could have the best of both worlds? Tegeler Audio Manufacturer is bridging the analog-digital divide by creating high-end analog gear like the Schwerkraft Maschine compressor and the Raumzeitmaschine reverb whose knobs you can control remotely using a plug-in in your DAW. Or their many analog units like the Cream bus compressor with mastering EQ or the VeriTube recording channel that let you save your settings using a custom recall sheet plugin, offering a complete line of pro audio gear from compressors to EQs to reverbs and beyond. Now you can get a pro analog sound while benefiting from the power of digital. Let your DAW help you move your knobs so that your music can move you. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about Tegeler Audio Manufactor. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Rob Schnaff, a producer making critically acclaimed records for the past two decades. He first gained recognition by producing, with his then-partner Tom Rothrock, Beck's debut album, Mellow Gold including the breakthrough single, Loser. Rob and Tom produced three albums for Elliot Smith, including XO and Figure Eight. After Elliot's death in 2003, Rob was asked by Smith's family to help sort, compile, and complete the tracks that Elliot had been recording. This was released as From a Basement on the Hill and became Elliot's highest charting album in the U.S. Rob went on to produce albums for Guided by Voices, Saves the Day, The Vines, Powderfinger, The Wigs, and Tokyo Police Club. In 2009, he produced Booker T. Jones's Potato Hole, which won a Grammy for the Best Pop Instrumental Album. In 2011, he produced The Road from Memphis with Booker, which again won the Grammy for Best Pop Instrumental Album. In addition to his work as a producer, Rob is an accomplished mixer. He mixed the debut album by The Foo Fighters with Rothrock and his mixed tracks for Fiddler, Moby, Ricky Lee Jones, and Grammy-nominated album for Mavis Staples. Rob's recent work includes Kurt Vile's latest release, including the single Pretty Pimpin', the critically acclaimed album from Cass McCombs, Mangy Love. How do you pronounce that? Mangy or Mangy Love? What is that, Rob? Mangy. 
Is it Mangy Love? Love? Okay, Mangy Love. Yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. The number one heat seeker from Joyce Manor, Cody, and Lemon Cotton Candy Sunset by Richard Edwards. Thank you also, and a big shout out to Ted Hutt for making my introduction to you, Rob. Please welcome Rockstars Rob Schnaff to Recording Studio Rockstars. Rob, are you ready to rock? I am ready. Nice, dude. It's awesome to have you here. And uh, as I was, as we were chatting about before the call here, um, it was nice to run into you at Winter Nam, which we were both just out in, in California for. Maybe you're, you're still in California, but it, for me, it was a visit. And I appreciate you coming up and saying hello to me on the floor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you matched your description. So <laughs> I knew it was you. <laughs> Did I actually describe myself somewhere? Yeah, you said beard, homeless. Right, exactly. So. Yeah. No shoes. <laughs> no shoes. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, oh that must, yeah, that, there he is. Right on. Well, so but I didn't look that much different from your description. No, no. I, and actually, um, uh, there's another friend of mine, Shane, here who you had, uh, who looked a bit like you, especially in your studio shot. Um, so I may have to try and connect you guys so you have a, a body double here in East Nashville. If you need that. <laughs> Uh, so, Rob, thanks for being on the show. I've kind of borrowed your your own introduction and bio from um, your your site on McDonough Management, but uh, give us a little introduction to yourself in your own words and tell us who you are and how you got into this recording thing. Uh, so let's see. Yeah, I grew up in uh, New Jersey, and uh, my father had been a recording engineer in Manhattan. And my uncle owned the first independent studio in Manhattan. Um, it was called Associated. I think it started in like 48. Nice. And, and um, so my father did like a lot of doo-wop and he, uh, they did a lot of the Brill Building stuff. And um, But I never, because I was in New Jersey and the studio was in Manhattan. It wasn't like I was around it or mm -hmm. I ever learned, learned anything, but I knew that it was a possibility of something that you could do. It wasn't just like this took some of the mystery out of it. Yeah. That's so important because otherwise you just have no idea. Yeah. You have no idea how the, yeah. So, um, and I was always into music and I was in bands and, you know, I played guitar and, um, yeah, it just kind of set me on this path from, um, when I was a teenager, it was like Alice Cooper, Jimmy Page. Um, nice. yeah, so it, it was sort of like, uh, uh, who was the producer of the Alice Cooper records? Uh, Bob Ezrin. Yeah. Bob oh, yeah. Ezrin and Jimmy Page were like. I want to do what they do, you know? And, yeah. uh, I just kind of, I, it just started listening to, to records, um, just trying to figure them out. Like, how do they put them together? And, and obviously, you know, the concepts you come up with were completely wrong, but it started the adventure. Do you remember having a sense that your dad was working on, music that you appreciated and were curious about or did you have sort of you know the kids rebellious attitude towards i don't care about my my parents music i want to do my own thing 
You know, it never really, my father's attitude towards the whole thing was he, there was no glory in any of it. You know, I would ask him like, oh, you met Mick Jagger. What was he like? He was like a person. And that would be the, (laughs) that would be the end of the conversation. (laughs) So I got no, yeah, there was no really glory rock and roll stories out of out of yeah. him it was one sentence and because uh, you know he wasn't into the bullshit and the and the whole dog and pony thing and he didn't like the drug abuse and the destruction yeah so uh what? that was the side i got out of it so this was like 70s yeah um did yeah. you happen to know roger mutino who's also from New Jersey, uh, I think about that time. No, I don't. I don't know him, but I know people have told me about him. Like, oh, you guys should meet. Yeah, you guys would probably love each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, like each other for sure. Um, yeah, he he had uh, some stuff like that to say. He, he shared some stories about like you know his his parents' approach to you know their their perspective on what the music scene was like as he brought his first sessions to his home studio and the, <laughs> and the band got chucked out on their ass onto the street for doing, doing oh, drugs yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So interesting stuff. Well, cool. So then, um, but you're out on the West coast now. How did you find your way from, uh, I, you, you aren't, you're on the West coast, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. Um, so I went to college in DC and then I was in a band in D.C., and that was in the 80s. And there was a lot happening in D.C. at that that time, uh, musically. Um, I can see and, the punk rock coming into the picture. Yeah, there was there was that thing going on. And, um, and then the band I was in moved. It was like, okay, let's get out of let's get out of here. And New York was not really happening at that point Mm -hmm. there wasn't any kind of thing going on there and uh yeah so we we went west so i moved out here and and i had been working in studios in dc as well yeah and i was kind of doing both was this 80s yet or is this still 70s no this is 80s and uh yeah and like the being in the band and being in a and you know in a studio i i uh it was like the combining of the two really i it was just so interesting how um uh you know you're learning about writing songs and you're and i'm trying to figure out you know engineering producing and so here here the band is the perfect guinea pig and mm-hmm. Writing songs, you know, as you start to, the the lights turn on and you sort of overwrite all your songs and they're too long. Yeah. And then you go record them and they're starting to just lay there flat because it's just too much stuff. And so that's when, you know, you start to realize like, this is boring. Mm -hmm. What do we got to do? And so, you know, razor blade to two inch and I just start going chop chop well we should get to this section here right by here I'm bored let's get rid of that part boom 
pull out those eight bars. And, and, you know, so that's how I learned about arranging. Yeah. I feel like for me that the struggle was whatever I was learning how to play on an instrument, I would be so excited about, you know, having figured out how to play some little part that I just want to play it over and over and over again from the beginning of the song to the end. <laughs> and it took me a while to learn that it was like pretty powerful to just shut up in the middle. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, yeah, well, you get to learn that um, the vocal is the thing that people want to hear. They don't want to hear you. <laughs> I know. That's a, tough, that's a tough pill to swallow along the way, too. It is. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, the truth is the truth. Um, so. As I was learning that lesson, too, I remember practicing this. I'd sit, like, I'd be out with friends and music was playing in the bar or something. And I'd sit and I'd imagine, okay, this track's, this is so great, this one that's playing right now. But if the vocals were muted, what would be left? And what would that sound like? And what would I think about it? If I was just, you know, imagining this music with no singing on it at all. Uh-huh, yeah. Or, like Andy Johns used to say, or I remember him saying this, like, you have the track and it's rocking, and then you add the vocal. Yeah. <laughs> and then the so whole the, thing sucks. the reverse yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man well they deserve it because if the vocalist is going to get all the credit they better take all the responsibility too right that's right <laughs> all right cool so uh so you learned that just just out of curiosity did you have some sort of favorite bands coming out of the dc scene when you were there or was were you sort of was that sort of just like a stopover on your way to and now we're out in, on the West Coast. Uh, what were the bands I liked in D.C.? I liked the Slicky Boys, Black Market Baby, uh, Scream. Okay, uh, cool. And this uh, is this sort of punk rock scene at all? I mean, I, I sort of know of Minor Threat is coming from there. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That It's that time period. Yeah. And there was also like the whole go-go scene was happening. So... Um, yeah, it was a really, and the worlds would cross, you know, Bad Brains, and they would have these shows where all these bands would play on the same bill, and you had, it was yeah. just, it would just go off. It was crazy. That's great. And you're at an age where you could really enjoy it, too. Yeah. Yes. Well, so you moved from D.C. out to uh, California, and then where did you end up there? So moved out here in 87 and then, um, uh, I got a job at the record plant and, um, as a runner starting all over again. Mm -hmm. And then, um, uh, uh, I met Tom there and we didn't want to go that standard route of runner, second engineer, blah, blah, blah. It was like, I'd already done this sort of, and um, Tom was always an outside the box kind of guy, mm -hmm. and and um, we both had our own ideas, and so we just started. Um, basically, what we did was we'd find a band we'd like and record them for free, mm -hmm. and um, there was this guy Steve Deutsch who had a studio at the top upstairs of the record plant called the micro plant 
and we would help him out and he would just give us free studio time. So we would drag bands in there on the weekend and record them. And then um, after a while, we had all these cassettes, you know, and they were demos. So what we did was we pressed them up on seven inches and now they were no longer demos. They were records. It's remarkable how that happens, isn't it? Yeah. And the the way, like, um, all of a sudden, our we weren't demo guys. Now we were making records. Not only were we making records, we were putting them out, and it was like it changed. It changed how you were looked at, because you, you back then you were like, you know, you were there was like a hierarchy, you know. Uh, a band would get signed and they would make demos yeah. and then they would make, and they would make demos to shop for a producer. And so when you were starting out, you were trying to get the demo work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, even Nashville has, a, you know, a traditional system of master sessions in the country music world. And then this whole industry um, traditionally of demo studios and songwriting and publishing house studios and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of, I guess it's kind of like that. So we kind of skipped that thing by making, taking our, and also it was this scene that wasn't, you know, it's pre Nirvana. So it was this whole thing that was bubbling under, that wasn't viewed as commercial yet for the major labels. And, um, yeah. And, and so we would press up these singles and bring them to the local, uh, record store and, you know, uh, and then we'd get meetings and we'd fly to New York and we'd hand out the, the seven inches and, you know, it was just like, uh, you were looked at differently. Yeah. Well, and then, yeah, go ahead, sir. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to say, what were some of the bands that you remember from that early time that you really enjoyed recording? Um, let's see. We had, uh, well, one of them was Loser. Yeah, okay. We were, we were definitely getting to that. <laughs> I wasn't going to leave that one out, so let's go there. Um, Rockstars, Rob was responsible for um, Beck's first breakout record. With a, yeah, with a so, hit single loser. And I remember and, hearing that for the very first time in my roommate's uh, room up in the upstairs of our house. Um, and he was playing it for us. And he was like, holy shit, guys, you got to hear this record. <laughs> and I was like, wow. So we had that two years before it even came out. And it, it was like the time wasn't right yet. And because it was still, you know, pre-Nirvana, it was all you know, hair metal. Yep. And guns and roses. Yep. But there wasn't, the, the window hadn't opened yet for, for, you know, it just wasn't right yet. So we had this song kicking around. We didn't know what to do with it. Um, so I had, I had seen back at the Silver Lake street fair, and then a couple of months later, Tom saw back at this club called Jabberjaw, and uh, neither one of us had told the other. And then I think he was like, "Hey, man, I saw this guy back." I was like, "Oh my god, yeah, well, I, you know." And um, 
and it was really like it was kind of outsider music um, yeah uh it was anti-folk there was there wasn't beats but lyrically it was like you know looking at a r crumb picture um wait did you just say there wasn't beats no. But I think of it as a loop record. I mean, doesn't Loser have a loop underneath it for the from start to finish? Yeah, but I'm just saying at the time, Beck was just like this anti-folk artist. Right. With with the cool lyrics. There that that didn't exist. Oh, you mean um, beats as in like the beat culture. The beatniks. <laughs> or no, you well, mean beats yeah, as I in mean, like hip hop beats. Well, both. So that lyrically it's kind of that it well no i agree with you lyrically it, it was like lyrically that's kind of what but i'm saying also at the same time there was no beat there was no hip-hop element to it he was yeah. just up there with an acoustic guitar oh i see yeah okay got it right yeah dig so it. um and the vocal on loser that's the first time he raps. That is take one. Interesting. Cool. And that song didn't exist. And then um, Tom's buddy Carl, um, who we had mixed some hip-hop records for, Tom, uh, Carl, he was like this redheaded guy from Seattle, but he had been in Houston making beats for the Ghetto Boys. Nice. <laughs> and uh he moved to la and um so um yeah so that song goes from nowhere to loser in three hours like it didn't exist wow carl carl drops the beat beck plays the slide writes down a bunch of lyrics he holds the radio shack pzm boom <laughs> so wait, wait. So t let's talk about the Radio Shack PZM. What was that story? That was the mic for the for the vocals. That was the vocal mic. That was a vocal mic. Nice. And did that have um, what quality should we remember from that? Just kind of like the sort of like a lo-fi quality on it, or was it sort of a distorted no, they, thing? No, the the Radio Shack PZMs they were like a sleeper. If you put because they were just like a knockoff of the crown PZM that you could mm -hmm. buy really cheap at Radio Shack. And all you had to do was, I think usually you put in one nine volt battery, but if you got the two mini camera batteries and put them in there, it made it 12 volts and more headroom. Oh, cool. <laughs> that was like the, that was like the, the little ma, uh, you know, the hack that you would do to it. And they were really cool. I still have them. I still have those PZMs. I th I'm wondering if I ever got those. I, I definitely remember those, and I remember recording with PZMs on different occasions. And I have a pair here, and haven't broken them out in a while. But that's one of the um, pitfalls of you know building your studio and having too many mics. Is eventually you get to a point where you have to remind yourself to use the cool mics that you forgot about. Yeah, or remind yourself why you forgot about them. Yeah, exactly. Or, or that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's cool. So, um, you know, one of the things, um, jumping forward, I sort of made a note about hearing Loser again and hearing the loops in there and stuff. And I wondered if you kind of 
It did. It, do you miss that sort of loop approach that came through a lot of the '90s too? You know, the song production was like, "Ooh, it's a cool loop, and it's going to be in from the top to the b- bottom of the song, and maybe we'll add drums to it, and maybe for some dynamic, we'll just mute the loop here and there." Do you miss any of that? I mean, like production has really changed from then to now too, where everything's sort of a lot of drums are sort of programmed to be in there. Uh, and if you want to discard that question, that's fine too. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I don't really think about it like that. I mean, there's a band I've done a bunch of stuff with called The Garden, um, and um, we do loops and the the it's a it's like these two brothers, um, and one is a great drummer. But they also have this electronic side, and I mean, you know, I combine the two all the time. Um, yeah, uh, I don't really think about. It. I always think about it, music, song. I don't really think about it as any time period or. Yeah, I guess I was just reminiscing about how there was a period where, like, you know, you you get a hold of the CD that has these sort of pre-made loops, and you pick one and start building oh yeah right 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 yeah Yeah, right oh yeah like the uh the breakbeat records yeah exactly also i'm digging your there's a dog in the background there that's sort of on loop too so we're gonna um (laughs) we're gonna call that like a special feature of this podcast episode like it kind of reminds me of like the uh, you know coming over the the podcast is probably going to sound closer to like the the sampled dog barks that make up the christmas songs you know Uh, wow, he's coming through that lab. Not now. He just stopped, but but it's it's all good. No problem. Well, so um, I can't tell you, I can't tell you how many times that dog has gotten skunked right outside the window. <laughs> Are you guys in the city or sort of out near the hills or anything? No, nah, we're right in Silver Lake. So there's all sorts oh, cool. of. You're in the city with skunks. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Dig it. Well, so um, Silver Lake is a cool place. Um, I think of uh, I think the club of Spaceland is one of the really cool oh, clubs yeah, yeah. to go discover cool bands. Um, I have a friend who's been on the podcast, Matt Mahaffey, and I'm wondering if you guys might know each other. He's actually the one who played me uh, Beck's Loser when it first came out and, and showed the rest of us in Murfreesboro, Tennessee back in the day. Oh, wow. I know that name. His, Why do his, I know that? His band is Self. And, oh, um, yeah, 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 right. He's back yeah. here in Tennessee, but I just saw him out there at NAMM as well. Well, so let me ask you this, uh, Rob. Share some more stories about Beck. You know, what were some things that made him a really great creative and an artist to work with? Um, what What was he like in the studio? Did you continue to work with him, or was it? Um, you did a couple of records. No, no, no. You did that one for sure. And then I don't, I don't know the rest of the history. Um, yeah, we never were in the studio. We were in either Carl's house or my house for mellow gold. Um, and then we had recorded a bunch for, well, I don't really know what it was for. We just had recorded a bunch. One song ended up on Odele. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had recorded a ton. Um, and then he hooked up with the dust brothers and the rest is history. Right. Um, it was, it was really fun. I mean, it was, when we were making Mellow Gold, it wasn't for anybody, and it was with the intention of 
you know, nobody was looking, nobody was breathing down your neck, nobody cared. So, uh, um, it was just sort of like you did whatever you felt like doing and it was really fun. And I knew, I knew it was, I was sad when it was over because I knew it was never going to. It was something we were never going to come back to. You know, mm-hmm. it was always, it would, it would be different after that. And it was, you know, like, um, have you seen that happen a lot with artists you work with where success just sort of makes everything different? Um, and what, what, what would you have to say as a comment on that? Um, I think if you are blessed with success, I mean, uh, I don't know what is success, but if you are lucky to have, you know, commercial appeal or whatever, when that, it just seems like it takes a while for because it's unnatural. That's not the natural state of our human existence is to be recognized and people think they know you. Um, I think it takes a minute to figure out how to navigate. Um, yeah. Like you lose your sense of, of creative um, centering or something like that through that potentially. Or yeah, I think there's, there's so many different parts and aspects to how it could be a head trip for you. And then also if suddenly you are um, all of a sudden you're, recognized as a commercial asset to a company now they are counting on you right they want they want you to continue to be an asset so now suddenly they have an opinion where yes. they didn't before right and, and the, all, the only element of surprise that's left is the one where you screw up <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you know their main input like well it's unfair to make these broad I know. But- I feel like we're, we're just going off on like a, um, philosophizing a little bit when, in fact, as I'm thinking about, you know, Beck as an example, he just went on to make all kinds of great stuff. So it doesn't – He did, we're but – We're talking about it very abstractly. Yeah. Okay. So when he made Odile, there was all sorts of record company people and otherwise saying – uh, who were very unsure and worried about it, hmm. worried about, and it only became a great record to them after it was successful. And I remember having, and I remember having a conversation with somebody from Geffen, you know, after it was a success and they were saying, Oh, what a great record. And I, and I said to them, would it have been a great record if it didn't sell? Interesting. And, you know, my answer is yes, but how did the, you know, a great record's a great record. It's not based on its commercial, you know, um, yeah. but anyways, so. Well, that, I think that that's, an, that. I think an interesting takeaway from that is just a reminder for us to kind of set our own barometers uh, or I guess uh, uh, compasses on on the art of the music that we're creating and, and just sort of like guide ourselves towards that. Because if you try and set your compass on success as the measurement of things, then you probably just get 
led around in circles and get lost in the desert or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. but it's also it's also what is success? Right, exactly. Like you can't. It's uh, it's one hand clapping in the forest with where the tree fell over and nobody heard it. Something like that. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, <laughs> let's keep moving forward. I I appreciate that we we uh, discuss those abstract ideas, but um, we got so many things to talk about too. Let's talk about another um, really incredible artist that you worked with that probably is right in the center of that topic of of like a great art, great record, and a success or maybe not a success, depending on who you're asking about it. But Elliot Smith, um, you you were able to work on XO and Figure Eight, and XO to me is one of the greatest records I've ever heard. Um, there are everything from the songwriting to the lyric to the musical sounds that come in and out of it to the arrangement to the incredible string productions that go on there. Tell us some stories about making that record and working with Elliot. Um, we also did either or. Um, oh yeah. So, um, uh, let's see. Uh, what are XO? God, it's, or just so, in general, just about just working with Elliot Smith, you know, anything things well, you remember I mean, about that? Yeah. So uh, I remember. I, I mean, I, I've told these stories before, but you know, the first time seeing Elliot was at this club called Jabberjaw, mm-hmm. and he, he was on this spoken word tour. Um, and it was on uh, Kill Rock Stars. It was a bunch of bands. Or it was like the spoken word record or something, but Elliot was playing. And my wife, Margaret, was uh, working at BMG Publishing and whatever. She had a long career in the music business. And she was doing a lot of stuff, signing bands to like um, uh, development deals, publishing deals. Um, And she had kind of tapped into the Northwest scene. And Slim Moon, who ran Kill Rockstars, was uh, was said, uh, "Oh, you got to go check out this guy Elliot." Um, so we went down there. We went down to Jabberjaw to see him, and um, it was so fucking hot in the club. There was no AC, and basically the only thing they had for to drink was like coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and literally, the walls were sweating. Like there was just moisture coming, you know, there was like from all the sweat, I think it like gathered on the ceiling and it was just gross in there. And Elliot was like, uh, I'm going to go out back and play. So if you want to see me, I'll be out back. And nice. we go out back and the first song he plays is needle in the hay. And it was just like, you know, it was, I was in. Nice, um, man. And um, Margaret and him started, ha- had a, you know, they, they started um, hanging out. They had a relationship. Um, she eventually signed him. And then, uh, so I kind of sort of sideways became friendly with him through, through her mm-hmm. and only to realize he was like a big, you know, gear freak. And, um, I didn't know 
how far along he was. He was like, you know, I'm, I want to get some gear, you know, any recommendations. And I was like, well, you know, I would get like, uh, I didn't, I was just keeping it really basic, you know, get like, a get a zoom. <laughs> this is pre zoom. Okay. <laughs> um, I was like, you know, get like a six, a Mackie 1604 and, you know, uh, some, you know, get like a, a decent cheap mic. And he's like, well, I already have like a API and a blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So we just started hanging out. Um, and I think around either or time, maybe we tried to get together. He, he was interested in, in like, a, he really liked pay no mind and on mellow gold. And he, he wanted to, you know, maybe record in my house and, uh, but it just didn't work. Didn't uh, like the, the timeline. Yeah. Um, and, uh, did you guys end up recording in your house or did you finally make it to a, a pro studio somewhere? No, then uh, Tom and I had a studio up in Humboldt and that's where we kind of, kind of, um, brought either or all together. It was, um, uh, he had, it was recorded like in his basement or he had just bits and pieces all over the place. So we bounced it Humboldt is above San, north of San Francisco, right? Yeah, about five hours. Okay, but you're down in LA now. Yeah. Okay. So we would. So Tom is from Arcata, California, Humboldt County. Okay. And um, uh, there was this old machine shop. His mom was traveling a lot, and there was this old machine shop on the property. And it was time to either like burn the building down or fix it up. So, um, we fixed it up, you know, and put, put windows. It's like a lot of my record productions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of times that's kind of what you're doing, right? Right. You're like, it's either you're like, you got to chuck this thing or, or fix it up. Yeah. Um, uh, so you guys fixed up a studio up there in Arcata, if I'm saying the name right. Yeah. Arcata. Yeah. We put okay. windows you know, so you always had like good body clock going on. You're and it was in the redwoods by a river near the oh. ocean. Oh, yeah, it was yeah. it was it was like rock camp. Um, and it, there was an apple orchard, and we put in like a, uh, um, you know, like a dirt bike track, and oh, it was pretty awesome. Um, it's or, I've been to Humboldt County once when I was eighteen in the eighties, actually, and. It was, I remember it being really beautiful there. My friend and I were, <laughs> we were t going down to, uh, to the waterfront. We were staying there with an artist, I think, but we, we made it to the waterfront, I think. And when like the big winter swells were coming in and crashing on the, on the cliff. Oh, wow. And, wow. Uh, and then we were making bongs out of uh, plastic uh, milk gallon jugs, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> oh, you're doing water bongs? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever it was we were doing, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, all right. So you're working with Elliot up there, and um, can that's you... where we bring we bring XO all together. We take all the various bits. He brings his half inch A track. 
we bounce everything to 16 track two inch nice and we do additional overdubs or we start from scratch uh bring all the bits together mix so had he recorded a lot of stuff himself initially and then you guys just sort of same thing it's like either tear the building down or, or fix it up i mean although it didn't need tearing down no no yeah it was good it was like uh yeah he had a Tascam um half inch a track and um yeah and so i think it was his girlfriend joanna was in their basement or something like that he recorded a bunch of stuff there and and then i had a stevens with um tape machine with 16 nice. track and 24 track heads so we just put up the 16 track heads for maximum analog yeah let's and, hey just for the listeners who aren't familiar that familiar with tape um let's describe why there's a difference between 16 track heads and 24 track heads and and what the result is how would you describe that um bigger heads bigger head gap so you're you're using like it's each track it's fatter a fatter track of tape for, for yeah so it's you know do the math 24 tracks across two inch versus 16 tracks across two inch yeah same tape and now you have a larger head gap because you have less tracks so it's it yeah there's just um nice. and that more, sounds great more I audio I have an MCI JH16 and I just, I've got 24 track heads and 16 track heads and the 24 track heads stay in a drawer. <laughs> <laughs> and I just lo love the sound of the 16 track. Well, yeah. so Rob, I've got some questions about these records. They're just kind of general, but like some of the sounds that really stood out to me, um, the, uh, the, the guitars, you know, on XO, there's, it's almost like a stringy quality to them. Um, and I wondered if you wanted to talk about recording Elliot's acoustic guitars, um, or just talk about recording acoustic guitars in general. What are some things that you can share with the listeners, the rock stars, about um, getting great acoustic guitar recordings? Well, so I like to start off with... Um, uh, I like to like sort of match strings to the guitar. So if the guitar is naturally really bright, then mm -hmm. I'm going for warmer strings. And just, you know, so naturally have it happen at the source so you you don't have to EQ stuff. Nice. Um so if the guitar seems too bright, then you know, you're going for like a a warmer and so do that kind of stuff. Um, what 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 does that mean? If I went to the guitar center right now, would I have a choice of strings that are brighter and strings that are warmer sounding? Yeah, like um well, depending if it's like the phosphor bronze or a bronze, you know, mm -hmm. or even different brands like uh John Pierce seems a little darker or warmer compared to say the Martin um and I think it's all in the makeup and I forget what the, I don't, I don't remember if phosphor bronze is brighter than bronze. I, 
I don't remember anymore. But you, but, but the part of the lesson is go. Don't be afraid to go pick up a bunch of packs of strings as you start a record and just have them there so you can try some different ones out. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. What about heavy versus light? Will the heavy strings? How would you describe that tone versus a set of light strings? Well, that's a whole other thing because um, sometimes your guitar won't like it. Right. So, um, and do you ever uh, put uh, electric strings on an acoustic guitar? Um, no. <laughs> okay, fair enough. No, I know they. I know they sound cool, but uh, it just hasn't been something I've been going for. Okay, cool. Yeah, and and I've seen people do that sometimes, and I think sometimes it's also about like this is just easier on my fingers and fun to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, it's also like, um, you could, like, some guitars like being in B or C. They just, they live, and then, you know, then you put the capo on, or, or, yeah, whatever. Um, And, like, uh, my 12-string, I keep it in D. It seems happier in D than being in E. Because I guess maybe the with all the tension of the of the twelve strings, I, I don't know. I don't you, care. Can, have you ever um, tuned it to D minor, the the saddest of all keys? <laughs> 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 all right. So let me let me ask you some other questions about other instruments on the record too. All right, but hang on. Oh, here's go the, ahead. Here's Sorry. the thing. So one of the things is, uh, and it's just a starting point, but and it's not a rule, but if it's strummy mm-hmm. uh, it's playing with small diaphragm and large diaphragm so you know finger picky large diaphragm strummy small diaphragm dig it it's like, a, it's and, like a, an acoustic guitar recording maxim and also keep the i like to have the mic like the distance my ear is from the guitar because then that's what the guitar sounds like to you. It, you're, you're not listening to the guitar with the mic. Like when you play acoustic, you're not your ear isn't right at the fucking twelfth fret. Nice, right? So yeah. I like to have that distance. It just kind of keeps the, you know, there's some kind of relative. Like yeah, that's the way it sounds. So you have the and part of the sound is the distance. So there have been times where I've taken a small diaphragm like an M Octave MK12 looking you're hunting for the right mic position and when when we just kind of brought it up to where the guitar player's ear was pointing down and then just sort of came out a little bit looking down at the guitar all of a sudden it sounded just right and i think it was a finger exactly. part too so uh-huh. that's cool and then another there you tip go. rock stars i would share too is um start collecting guitar picks there isn't just one. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a lot big, of guitar. That's picks. a big deal. Yep. And there are ones you didn't even know existed, like felt picks and metal picks, especially if you don't want your strings to last very long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or a quarter. Or a quarter, you know, or wooden picks. <laughs> yeah. And no, rubber, like, rubber picks. I've had rubber picks in the studio, and they all have different tones, and they, they oh, can really amazing. do great, cool stuff when you're recording. And yeah, like this, the, the light pick for non super picky, you know, strummy, 
um, just to, to, to relax the percussive part of yeah. acoustic, yeah. you know, that's, it's magic. But that one pick that's super small and almost looks like, you know, it's really thick and it's hard plastic and it looks like a jewel. That's just for metalheads who are speed picking a guitar center. <laughs> <laughs> you don't really need that one. That's right. Um, and then sometimes the big, uh, heavy triangle picks, which can be great for bass and stuff like that too, if you need it. Yeah. And the felt pick, great on bass. Yep. Yep. All right, cool. We're getting somewhere. Um, let's uh, talk about, um, we've actually been going for a good long bit here, but um, there were also some great piano sounds on Elliot Smith, some Leslie piano and stuff like that. Do you remember if uh, recording any of that, or do you want to just talk about, um, do you have any tips for recording Leslie piano? Do you want to even explain what that is? Uh, you take the piano and you run it through the Leslie nice <laughs> how, and how do we do that when we've never done that before well um uh you can record the piano and then run it you know once you get the part that you like um run it through the Le leslie uh post um performance the, that way depending on the size of the room you don't have to worry about the whole thing bleeding into one another and you know you just do it through di yeah um and you typically need to have some sort of leslie you know guitar yeah you need to have the input yeah the pre yeah right and so that was that tip but i've done it also where you'll you know you could do it live as well and it's the same you just have to split the mic but it's the same thing you know it's little more hairy if you yeah. don't have a big room or a place to isolate but um because you can get feedback from the mic yeah you can get the feedback but uh either way works one's sort of more controlled yeah do you you've like just a simple way would be a 57 and then maybe one of those high impedance low impedance mic to to quarter inch adapters just going into the the leslie pedal bingo all right Cool. Um, and then let's stay on piano for a sec. Uh, you know, for example, on Baby Britain, there's a great up, I think it's an upright piano sound. And I wondered if you just wanted to talk about, um, you know, kind of teach the rock stars about recording an upright piano. What are some different ways to approach recording an upright for a record? So um, you could either, I mean, the two ways I like doing, and it's sort of two different uh uh okay <laughs> that's all right yeah I'm, I'm hitting you with the tough questions the the two ways i like doing it are you know you take off the front and you have access to the um where the hammers mm -hmm. are in contact and um and, you know you could do stereo or mono across the front of the piano or you go to the back across the soundboard. Um, uh, I found that the back is a little brighter and. Um, Interesting. I would I wouldn't have guessed that. I, I know it's weird, but the front you get a little more stereo, and the back you get more you know it's that more soundboardy sound. I don't yeah. know how to, but. Um, 
Yeah, you get maybe the front is a little more attacky. Mm-hmm. You hear the uh, the the um, yeah. hammer hitting the string. Yeah, and you get maybe a little more left right action if you're going stereo. Um, yeah, that's so that's kind of what I'll, I'll do. Or if it's going to be from the front, you know, um, uh, a mono with a tube mic or. Um, and what about um, as far as mic position? Do you like the guitar? Do you like to have a mic sort of where the ear is looking towards the piano? Or do you get a little uh, closer than that? It depends. That, that to me, more depends on um, if it's going to be a mono thing, maybe yeah. And if it's going to be stereo, then maybe I want it closer so that I am getting more stereo. Because um, I'm probably going to treat it some more anyway to get it to fit into the track. Yeah. Nice. All right, cool. Well, Rockstars, uh, we're going to take a break now for just a sec. And thank you, Rob, for being here on the podcast with us. Hang tight because we are about to jump into, uh, we haven't even touched the rock and roll. So we're about to get into some, how to make some really great rock tracks as we come back into the podcast. And a reminder, you can find links to stuff we're talking about, including a wonderful Spotify playlist of Rob's records which I'll include in the show notes, show notes so you can go listen to his amazing uh, discography. In fact, it was one of the ones I enjoyed the most on Recording Studio Rockstars, just going and listening to your records, Rob. And you find all that <laughs> at, at recordingstudiorockstars.com. Just search for Rob Schnaff, and it'll take you right to the blog post. Or if you're on your mobile player, you can just click through, and I'll, I'll have the link right there. So we'll see you in just a moment for the jam session. Roswell Pro Audio brings you microphone design that is out of this world. Endorsed by a growing list of artists and producers like Phil Collin of Def Leppard, Ross Hogarth, who's recorded Van Halen, Ziggy Marley, and the Doobie Brothers, and Super Dupes, working with Drake, Mary J. Blige, and Eminem. These are all rock stars that have discovered just how great Roswell microphones sound. Check out the Mini K47, which uses a capsule modeled on the one in the vintage U47 at a street price of only $299 or the beautiful Delphos condenser microphone with a capsule tuned like the vintage U67 with great clarity and far lower noise at a street price of only $899. In fact, you are hearing my voice right now on the beautiful Delphos microphone. These mics are carefully crafted by hand and immediately feel good even before you plug them in and hear how great they sound. These are well-built microphones that will last you and your studio a lifetime of great recording. Check out more audio examples of these awesome mics at roswellproaudio.com. Hey, Rockstars, we're going to jump back in now for the jam session. My guest today is Rob Schnaff. And Rob, are you ready to jam? I'm ready to jam. All right. So I think for the jam session today, rather than just go through my usual outro questions, I just want to keep talking about making records with you and particularly the really amazing sounding rock records that I heard in your discography that you've done, because we haven't even talked about that stuff yet. So let me jump right in with a question about working with Fu Manchu, which was one of the records in your discography <laughs> that I thought sounded killer. And I didn't really know anything about these guys before. Um, they're just a great band and they have a thing they do and you record it. 
but the guitars, it's like, it's like, it's a classic, like left, right, center kind of thing. Like one guitar on the left, one guitar on the right and the drums in the middle, but the guitars are just so massive and in your face. And I loved it, you know? Yeah. Marshall fuzz face, you know, or, uh, yeah, it was just, they're into their, they were like, um, fuzz connoisseurs. Uh, I mean, they still are the bass player, Brad, he makes awesome fuzz pedals. His company's called creepy fingers. Oh, cool. I have to check that out. Oh yeah. It's great. Really great stuff. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's pretty, that's what it is. And I think that's, I think that's why that's what's part of the sound is it's left, right. And solo. You know, yeah. vocal, bass, drums. It's it's really simple. Well, and what a cool way to make pedals too. It's like you know, uh, tweak them out so that they sound killer on your record, and then here's the pedal that we used on our record, and you can you can pick one up. Um, yeah, and and he's really like, uh, uh, you know, he he knows why this pedal sounds good and the relationship with you know the um you know getting the right kinds of transistors and then you know having the bias controlled for the the gating or not the gating or yeah Mm -hmm. it's it's really cool um all right so let's talk amps you said marshall's that's kind of a marshall sound for that yeah yep it's there's really it's nothing fancy all right, um, single coils or double or uh, humbuckers. What makes a good rock record? Uh, there was one guy had humbuckers, the other guy had single coils, both going through fuzzes. Fender versus Gibson. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, good enough. Um, let's talk about like share some memories or some tips on recording electric guitars like that. What do we need to know? Um, are we doing it? Are we typically making it too complicated, or or are we typically not getting complicated enough with the way we're recording guitars? I'm always about the I'm always about simplicity and stacking layers of of simplicity on top of one another. But it's always simple. Okay. So um, I'm about one mic, and if we need something else then we'll add two and then if we're using two they're going to be combined to one track okay so um, commit to that one sound and it's and be all about it. commitment and my, the whole thing to me about making records is collecting commitments all you're, right dig it you're collecting performances and commitments and you're committing to performances and you're committing to sounds so when it's time to mix you're mixing your collection of committed performances and sounds. Nice. I like that. And one of the things I really loved about your records is they sound killer. And, um, you know, a particular thing I noticed, and I don't know if you, if there's a way to comment on this, but you did a, you had a lot of rock records in your discography and a lot of aggressive, creative expression right like powerful music powerful guitars drums vocals sometimes the vocals like um i think kurt vile 
are a little quieter and, and up close. And then, and then vocals like the vines and Fu Manchu and, um, I'm trying to remember which ones, maybe it was Fiddler and Tokyo Police Club, um, more, much louder vocals and sitting back in the track just right. But overall, I was never, my ears were never ripped off. And so how do you, I wanted to ask how you do that. How are you making records that are so rock and roll and so listenable in the mid-range and top end too, and not like shredding my ears apart? Because a lot of records now are just made to be super maximized, loud volume. And it's digital distortion eventually. You know, you can only smash shit into the, you know, into zero so much. And mm -hmm. um, it becomes fatiguing. So it's important to have dynamic. Um, yeah. and, and also, if you want stuff to sound good, you got to have dynamic range. I mean, you start losing low end and stuff just starts smashing together. And yeah, even if it's not like um, distortion, as you would think, you know, the, what that word implies, mm -hmm. I mean, digital clipping is digital clipping. Um, you call it whatever you want, but it's, it hurts your ears after a while. What about distorted guitars? Have you found that um, when you begin with a distorted guitar that like typically a little darker than you expect turns out to be the right move by the time you get to the mix or brighter than you expect turns out to be the right move by the time you get to the mix or, or neither of those. Uh, like just when you're dialing in the tones with the guitars, what are, what are, um, are there any lessons for us as far as stuff that repeatedly seems to happen and, you know, a little adjustment that always sort of takes place? Um, well, I really just try to get it at the source. I don't do a lot of EQ. Okay. So I turn the knobs on the amp until it sounds right. And, you know, it's sort of like about guitar and amp first. Um, so that, you know, and then if, once you get that right, you don't really have to do a lot of stuff. And the stuff that you might do is like, oh, maybe I need to roll a little bottom out or take a little top off. Yeah. But it's not, it's not like I'm cranking something in the middle. I'm never doing that. Right. Um, I much prefer to move the mic. Oh, it's a little bright. Okay. I'll move it out off the, the cone a little bit. Or it's dark. Okay, I'll move it more towards the the you know the cone. Because when you move the mic towards the cone, what are some of the things that you should expect to hear? So, Just a little bit more top, right? Yeah, when you move it towards the center, it's going to get bright, and when mm -hmm. you move it out towards the edge, it gets darker. So you just could, you know, right there's your EQ for the mm -hmm. top end. So you do that, and um, and then moving it really close or back a little bit is your low end. So you could, you know, right. That's, you get the that's sort of like the proximity effect. Right? Yeah, exactly. Proximity. And so there you're kind of two little without EQing EQ moves. How about angling the mic versus the mic sort of parallel to the grill of the amp? So that's a way of like, sort of, uh, 
I'll do both. Uh, you know, and it's sort of like, uh, uh, you know, a way of getting, uh, the blend right of like, yeah, I want a little top, but, uh, I don't want too much top. I want, man, I still want to get some of that cone, but mm-hmm. I want to get some of the, yeah. And so that's when you angle it. Okay. Getting the flavor. What it do was- you, what do you do? Well, I, I, you know, the, the proximity effect is one I go do a lot where I'm like, it doesn't have enough low end. I'm going to move it in closer or it's too boomy. I'm going to move it back a little bit. And then sometimes I go make the move and I come in and it, and it somehow met, you know, mysteriously does the opposite of what I expect. But I, <laughs> I do try and learn, I do try and learn to recognize that when I walk into the control room and it sounds great, stop doing shit, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, but and that's I, also the that's also the other interesting thing is none of these are rules like exactly what you said happens. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. And, and and you never know and then there are times uh this happens to me repeatedly. I start doing a vocal chain um we're we're doing vocal overdubs and it's and I then I I back it off. Like, I'm like, oh, it's too hot. I better back that off. And then I back it off. And then I come back to comp the vocals later. <laughs> and I always like that first sound that was too hot a little bit more <laughs> than, than the one that was recorded properly later. Uh, yep. That's funny. So that's a challenge. Well, um, how about uh, drums? Because one of the things that I definitely heard consistently across your records is just great sounding drums and particularly snares. Um, there's a quality of, I, I almost want to say that you really understand when a snare should be a little shorter rather than longer to be just right for the track. And I wondered if you want to just talk generally about stuff that we need to learn about recording really great sounding snares on records. Obviously, it, you may want to begin with, you need a great drummer, but you also need to capture the drums in the right way. Uh, a great drummer and good drums. But if you don't have a great drummer, good drums. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I don't even uh, know what good drums are. If, what if you don't have a lot of experience with this? How do you how do you discover good drums? Well, um, hmm, that's a good that's a that's a good question. Um, you know. Hmm. Should we just go to Guitar Center and ask? Yeah, how do you know? I guess a uh, good drummer. Um, I, Lior Goldenberg was just on the podcast, and that was, you know, his advice was saying he he took a great a drummer that he respected out to shop for drums so that he was picking the right stuff that way. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. Uh, like. Uh, yeah, I don't know how. I mean, I know when I'm around crappy drum, I mean, they can be crappy Ludwigs, you know, it doesn't matter the brand really. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, basically when they're not, when there's no low end, that something's wrong. Um, you mean low end out in the room with the drums or? In yeah. The like you hit them and they're just like, they're just like, gang, 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 gang. you know, there's no, there's <laughs> Um, uh, but you know, there's so many different things about this. It, this one's complicated to me. 
Yeah. Um, cause it's about what kind of heads are on there. Well, you know, the tuning, you know, they, they all kind of, they have a range in which they want to sit in and you can really change tones by tuning. And, um, I mean, by, uh, the, you know, different heads, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there's so many different colors you can get that way. Um, do you feel like when you go out into the room where the drums are and you're not even listening through the mics yet, you can really understand most of what you need to understand about whether the drums are sounding right before you even are listening through the microphones? I can tell. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause you go, yes. Cause you know, you kind of get a feeling of what, your snapshot's going to be like, and like, I, you know, I can go stand in front of the kick drum and go, Oh yeah, this, this is going to happen. This is going to be a piece of cake yeah. or, you know, and, and that's why, like for me, I like Ludwig Toms and I like a Gretsch stop sign kick drum. There's something about them. They have so much bottom. Just what's makes a, you what's lo- a Gretsch stop sign kick drum. I picture uh, an octagon. It's the stop sign badge. It's a, it's like they're from the seventies and eighties. Oh, cool. Cool. I didn't and, know about and, and so, you know, the, the badge that says Gretsch on it is like stop sign shaped. So I got you. The, All right, cool. Um, man, those things sound good. Uh, for me, to me, mm-hmm. you know, it's all subjective. That's what I like. Um, uh, um, Overheads are really important to me, and I want the kick and the snare in the middle of the overheads. Yeah. So I move the overheads until I get that image right. And it sometimes it looks weird because it'll be on the outside of the hi-hat and the inside of the ride kind of over the floor tom. It's maybe not what you're expecting, but the kick and the snare are in the middle. Yeah, so you're positioning the overheads until the kick and the snare with the overheads sort of the overheads are panned left and right, but the kick and the snare sound like they're in the middle because yeah. of the positioning. Yeah, because you don't want to have your snare panned in the middle, you know, your close mic, and then in the overhead it's pulling off well, depending on the perspective, but anyways, it's pulling off to one side. Cause then you have this like sort of timing relationship thing that that's not quite right. No, no, so, we're gonna we're gonna go there. I made a note to ask you if you liked drummer's perspective because I felt like I was hearing that on a fair number of, at least the records. I I was thinking about the question. I was hearing the hi hat over to the left if it's a righty drummer. Yeah, I'm 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 about drummer's perspective unless he's a lefty. And there was yeah exactly because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise it fucks in my air drumming. Right, exactly. Well, and it's kind of fun to just know where to pan things when you're when you're working and not have to think too hard about it. I forgot. I was trying to see which record I wrote down, but there was one of the records that particularly had um, just one rock guitar, which you had panned to the right. And I was think I was listening, and I was like, "This doesn't sound out of balance. Why?" And then I realized that you you almost paired it up with the hi hat, which was panned left, and it was like that's exactly the thing. That's it. I'm all about the image. So I always try to balance it out like, like that. So if it's hi-hat, it's going to be single guitar. The guitar is going to be off to the 
you know, one side where the hi-hat. So you have sort of like activity on both sides. If it was floor tom, it would be the other way. So they're not on top of one another, and you can get the feeling of both because they're both doing something. Shoot, who was it I wanted to ask you about floor toms? I forgot to bring my reading glasses for the interview here, so I'm having <laughs> trouble reading my own questions. But there was, oh, it was Tokyo Police Club. Mm-hmm. So, so that song, Favorite Color in particular, has super tight breaks with guitars and drums. And I think you've got that Tom thing you're talking about. And I wondered if you could talk about ways to make things really tight like that in the production. Are you gating things in the recording process? Um, are you, would you approach it? Would you go in and like manually edit in between hits and pro tools after you record them to make things super tight? Um, and, not that you have to answer that specifically, but can you give us some teaching about how to approach that kind of production and some smart moves? Um, so I'll, you know, I kill the toms until they're on. And okay. then I kill them again. Um, uh, so in other words, in Pro Tools, you would edit out everything except for when the tom hits. Yeah, and, and it'll... It and. Yeah, and fade it out so it's natural. So it yeah. won't go doom. It'll go doom. Right. Um, um, it'll sound you, natural, so you won't hear it go. Gah. You know, you'll do, hear it'll it'll melt back in. Do you find that you um, have to fade that tom before the downbeat when the crash cymbals come screaming through the tom mic? No. All right, then it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> That's just as valuable to know as anything. <laughs> well, I mean, it also, I think it depends on what the bleed's like and what the drummer's like. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, is the drummer playing with a hammer or does he actually have technique, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Do you sometimes record drummers in production styles where the drummer is really cr- just creaming the cymbals and that's appropriate? Or do you find that often great drummers that you work with are really sensitive with the cymbals. Uh, you know, how, just what comment do you want to make on that? Like hitting the drum shells at the proper volume and the cymbals at the proper volume. Is that even a thing or is it just great drummers and shitty drummers? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, it's two different, it's almost two different things. Um, Cause sometimes it's not the, great musician that makes the great band it's sort of like the uh you know the this collective spirit of the whole thing so if someone is a basher but that's what they know then that's what you got to go with i don't want to like try to correct their thing and all of a sudden you make them self-conscious about what they're doing nope now's not the time to to do that that's Mm -hmm. your thing i want you to be the best you that you are so that's what we got to do the physics of it are you know you get more bottom from a from a drum you get more low end from a drum when you don't beat the shit out of it like doom you get more low end and boom uh you know they they cancel they they choke so that there's actual physics 
Someone did a paper on that. So that's... <laughs> it was probably George Massenberg who was just on the show recently. <laughs> so, um, so two of your records, like um, Cass McCombs and Kurt Vile, those two are a little bit more of the quiet stuff, as I recall, where the great drums... Great drummers. Yeah, the drums are really big and deep and, and maybe even sounded like stick bundles or something like that. Whereas like on the Fu Manchu record, the drums Basher. sound killer but it's more of a basher but it's like just the right balance between the drum the drum kit and the guitars which are almost bigger than the drums yeah absolutely and and that's different kinds of music um context is important you know um you don't always do the same thing regardless of the music you do different things for the music so it's not just about like so it's not about me like, this is my thing. This is what I do. It's like, okay, what do we got to do? Well, All on right, this cool. show, it is about you. <laughs> uh, so enjoy. All right, well, let's see. Let's talk about the snare sounds on, like, um, if you can. You know, I, I made a note. Kurt Vile, um, yeah, particularly Kurt Vile, the, the drums and the snare just sounds so fucking cool. And the snare sounds... To me, bigger than it must have really sounded coming through the mics. In other so words, it sounded like you were doing a little bit more to it to to get that final result. Um, it's a a cool um, Radio King snare, you know, wood snare, and Stella. From, uh, she's in War Paint. Um, she's a oh yeah, gr- great drummer. Just- I've recorded her, I think. Oh, they, yeah. They came through our studio at Bonnaroo one year. She's so good. Just grooves, great technique, knows how, she knows the deal. Um, and uh, yeah, and then, you know, uh, 1176 is your friend. <laughs> hey, by the way, your mic might be bumping into something, so you might watch out for that. But um, oh, was there anything about, like, uh, are there some cool tricks where you widen the snare somehow as we're as it's as we're hearing it in the mix or am i just hearing the snare just kind of speak into the overheads which are panned it was wider than just up the center you know um let's see uh it could be like uh well so and like, is there stuff that you just generally are some good ideas that you can try when you're mixing, for example? Yeah, so it's a combination. I have the snare paralleled, so it's like, you know, snare, and then the parallel is um, 1176 with the gate on it. Mm-hmm. And then also sending it to a parallel drum bus um, of a... Um, sorry, I'm moving the, my earbud fell out. That's all right. Uh, uh, so sending it to a drum bus, like a parallel compression for the whole drum bus? Yeah. So, um, there's two different kinds of compression going on. You know, you have like the drum, br- drum bus compression and the 76. So it might be getting spread through the drum bus, that collection, and then also, you know, like uh, there's a small room on it. Right. That's what I wanted to ask about, too. That's kind of what I'm getting at. So you would create sort of a small room sound as part of the mix process? Yeah. And, and sort of send the snare just to that? 
Yeah. And I could tell you, I have this, I kind of modify the chapel and alta verb. Okay, cool. Um, so talk a little bit about how you like to, I don't know, just, just, um, how do you deal with reverbs for mix? Do you have like a vast collection of reverbs that you use? Um, do you find that you have a collection of stuff you've discovered and presets that you've created um, and you've just collected those over time? Or is that more like per record you start discovering which sounds are good and you collect those for a particular record? I, I guess I'm, have... I'm, I'm making up bullshit answers for you, there, but, <laughs> but I want to hear what you say. <laughs> yeah. So um, I have like starting off points, but I, do not like I, I you know I have like a go-to plate I have um I have my um shore vocal master spring reverb that I like piping stuff through nice. I have um got one of those upstairs I love that thing um, and when you say plates go-to plate do are we automatically thinking sort of like long lush like wash sort of plate or do you do you use plates in real short settings too yeah, I use them short, but like I like I'm saying, like I have uh, so I probably have one that's I start off with, you know, maybe it's three and a half seconds or something. Mm -hmm. But that's just sort of like a starting off spot, and then I I really change it for the song and see what and, it sounds like. And rock stars, just for just for assistive definition, three and a half seconds is is kind of a long plate, right? Yes. Right. All right. Cool. Um, and, and Rob, I guess we didn't discuss it, but when I say rock stars, I'm referring to our listeners. That's how we lovingly yes. give them a shout out. <laughs> Feel free to say hi to them at any point. Um, so, so plate, uh, spring reverb, um, plugins. Are you in plugin world? Often? I'm in plugin worlds world? for that stuff. And, Usually springs, I'm in the real world. Yeah. And that's if you that saw, part of like my capturing studio, and committing early. Yeah, yeah. And my my, my studio isn't big. So um, I but wish it, I but had... But it looks so big in the photo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's not much bigger than that. Yeah, nice. Um, Do you want to describe your studio for us? Let's geek out a little bit. Uh, so let's see, uh, what's the control room is about 15 by weird shaped 17 and then maybe 600 square feet recording space with two ISOs that don't encroach on that space. Okay. And I have, um, an old Electrodyne. 1204 and an MCI 428B, uh, both and pretty modified. They dump uh, the Electrodyne dumps into the MCI. Those are your consoles. Those are my consoles. I got the Burl Mothership for conversion, and then mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, lots of outboard and um, uh, if we could afford a Burl Mothership, should we get one? I really like it. Um, 
That's converters, rocks, rock stars. That's that is your interface to your Pro Tools, right? Yeah, I really like it. Um, I had I had a collection of stuff before, uh, you know, links, uh, Gen X, and um, you know the Avid, and mm-hmm. um, uh, they all had sort of different latencies and. There would be some stuff that would get broken up over yeah. two converters. Man. Yeah, it sucks. Oh, and it's I just, such a such a math nightmare when you're just oh, trying to man, make music. It's so annoying. So uh, I just wanted all of one. I just wanted one of something. Yeah. And um, man, there was a. It was not an intellectual, you know, squint fest. It was just like, whoa, that sounds better. <laughs> That's a good feeling. Yeah, it was. It, yeah, it was easy. You know how sometimes that listening the the shootouts can be like, yeah. well, that seems a little wider, or right. Yeah, that, it wasn't that. It was just like, okay, this is clearly awesome. Let's do this. Yeah, let's do this. Fuck, that's a lot of money, <laughs> honey. Yeah, I need this. <laughs> Phone call, phone dialing in background. Well, so, all right. So um, how about, uh, let's see, and you're working in Pro Tools often, and do you like to mix in the box, or do you do sort of some hybrid combination for mixing? I am definitely uh, out on the console. Um, I do, I'm definitely hybrid. I There's plugins I love, but um, I like summing across a stereo bus. I have a, a particular tricked out thing that I really like to do. My console was originally a quad bus and mm-hmm. um, we broke it up into two stereo buses, two different flavors. One's vintage Neve. The other's like sunset sound nine, nine ninety Jensen's nice. nine ninety is the op amp. Jensen is the, the uh, transformer. That's and like the studio C console, isn't it? It's, or the, uh, the Prince Room or whatever, isn't that yeah, all full of and, and, stuff? Yeah, and NA as well. Okay. Or one. Hold it. One, two, three. Yeah, that's a one, two, three studio. Oh, okay, um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think I keep screwing that up every time I try. It's, yeah, it's really cool, hard. like to, I know all about Sunset Sound. Yeah, no, it's, I, yeah, you never know. Um, um, okay, so you got you got the two buses, two stereo buses. Two stereo buses, and what I thought I would be doing initially would be like, you know, you run some stuff through the Neve, and then you parallel, and then you run some stuff to you run the hi-fi stuff to the the Sunset bus. But what I figured out, I discovered was I send because also the mod has a serial parallel switch, and so what I end up doing is. I run the mix to both simultaneously. Stereo, simultaneously, then I take the sunset, the hi-fi, the sunset bus, and I go series. I I drive that into the Neve bus, and I saturate the transformers, and then it opens up, and it's fat, and it's oh my god, it's magic. It's like the Mo Beta button. Yeah, it's really cool. And uh, that's like the magic. 
and it and it's you just you drive it you just turn it up until you all of a sudden you hit that sweet spot and you hear it and boom i was prepared for you to tell me that like you know you, you run it to simultaneous buses and you release the um the the sunset mix is just for the US market and the, the <laughs> neve mix is just for the european market <laughs> yeah right um well that's cool now what about uh compression on your mix bus what what do you want to share about that what lessons can you teach us about what we should be thinking when we're trying to add compression to our stereo bus cuz we certainly heard that we're supposed to do it um so uh, or, or rather we've heard that that people who know what they're doing really well do that um i have to be careful with my preps because you might your answer might come back going well i don't do that and <laughs> i don't mean to imply anything no no yeah um i mean i love compression um i just think um you know it's i hmm, it's a little complicated but I think it's really important to get your mix rocking without the compression. Because yeah. it's really easy to mix into the compressor and have it sounding good. And if you pop it out, it'll kind of fall apart. Or your snare um, will be really, 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 really loud. Yeah. And <laughs> you know what? If you do it without it on and then pop it in, it sounds really good. Yeah. And it's sort of like you've made a more detailed, more refined picture. So that's what you should do. Um, get your mix together, then put it on. And um, I myself, I never take more than 3 dB off. I don't, I'm not like a big, heavy compression guy, but I will say this. I put it on one of my stereo buses. I put it on the Hi-Fi bus, and then I drive the transformers on the Neve bus into saturation, and I put nothing on that. And so you get these two different kinds of uh, – it's just – man, the transformer thing is just a different thing. Yeah. I like transformers a lot. Yeah. Not the movie, though. <laughs> <laughs> Not a good movie. Well, it just wasn't for me, but um, I'll probably uh, but I'm still gonna watch commit. it. I'm going to commit and say it's not a good movie. Okay, all right, fair enough, fair enough. You're all, you're all about committing. All, all, all about committing, yeah. A collection of commitments, right? <laughs> wasn't that it? That's it, and right. I'm committing to Transformers is not a good movie. Okay, fair enough, but but it's great for your, for your audio. Um, I feel like a lesson for me was learning that um, getting really excited about compressors and all the crazy shit they can do is a wonderful, there's a lot of room for that on the individual instruments, mm -hmm. but I had to learn that, uh, I wanted to be very, you know, limited or not cautious, but, but, um, conservative with what those compressors are doing when it came to my mix bus. And I started to make better records with that combination. But then again, same old thing. There's no rules. Cause you know, at the Bonnaroo studio, it, we're in the moment. It's so fast. You don't have time to you know, yeah, do right. the mix. And, and we're like, shit, that one sounded killer. And then we turn around. I asked my assistant, I was like, how was the compressor doing? He was like, dude, you buried the needle on that one. And <laughs> it like goes against all our rules. So, Yeah. I, and that's the thing. Like, 
there are no rules. Yeah. And um, turn the knobs and dial it in because it's really amazing how you forget that you, you turn the knobs in a way and you make the meter move. You know what? And then if you go there and you sort of refine it, you could really get something to happen. You just have to remind yourself to listen if you have the moment. If you're in the heat of battle, fucking that's your moment. That's what you're doing. Right. Just grab your sword and, and start swinging. Yeah, exactly. Um, what about attack and release knobs on our stereo bus? What the hell are we supposed to do with those things? Um, you dial it in. You know, it's like tempo of song and, you know, effect you're going for. I, I, you know, that's why I like, I, I like the C1 auto mode. Mm-hmm. And with the not the fastest attack, and that has kind of has the uh, I don't know has sound uh, that I like sounds familiar to me. For somebody starting, um, what are what are some things you would say? Hey, you should listen for this detail, and then listen for this detail as far as what they might do when they're turning the attack knob and the release knob. What are the things they might want to be told to listen for as a starting place? Well, you just hear how it like clamps down on the snare drum or, you know, clamps down on those front leading edges of, of, uh, uh, attacky information. And, and that's the attack knob, right? Yeah. On the attack knob. And is that something you want to clamp down on or do you want that to pass through and then sort of grab on? Right. So, and right there is a dynamic. And right there is a way you could maintain a dynamic or, you know, smash something into oblivion. Right. And the good news and the bad news, rock stars, is that is entirely on you. There's like this. Yeah, right exactly. Answer. There's like, what do you think? Do you like what it do you or think? do you not like it? Yep. Absolutely. And if you don't know, um, what do you do, Rob, when you don't know the answer? You take I, a break? Oh, if I can't tell what I like? Yeah, yeah. If you're not sure what you think of the answer, you don't know if you like it or not. You don't know which one you like better. Um, you're squinting. <laughs> yeah, if I'm squinting, I'll live with it one way and then live with it with another way and maybe have a beer. Nice. I like beer. Beer's good. Do you like IPA? I hate IPA. Oh, it's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could tell you about this. Please do. It's a dirty beer. That's probably why I like it. So. <laughs> like dirty in a good way? <laughs> um, so IPAs are really easy to make. And that's sort of why they took off in the boutique world. Um, they're a warm brew. And lagers take longer and are cold brew, so they're more expensive to make. And also... Um, the sterilization, the sterilization of the lines is that the lines got to be clean for right. lagers and the lighter beers and the darker beers. They're just, you know, not as important. Well, it's funny, uh, not that this is a beer show, but I think we have enough listeners that will appreciate beer as much as we do. So I'll talk about it. Um, I've learned that the place that you choose to have a draft beer at if whether they do a good job or not of cleaning the lines may have more to do oh, with man. whether you're drinking fine beer there than any other factor. 
And Absolutely. my favorite pour, there's there's something here called Bearded Iris in Nashville, which is just a fantastic new brewery. And I discovered, I, I think I liked it even better at our local pizza joint. And I asked the bartender about that. And he said it was because the kegs are so far away for the design of the place that they have to clean their lines constantly. Mm-hmm. And the beer just tastes delicious there. Right. Yep. Um, what... <laughs> I'm going to try and spin this back. What's an example of something like that in the studio? Um, I drink Modelo. <laughs> well, I was I was actually trying to segue from beer back to recording. But I know, like, but I, I thought it was important to bring it back to beer. All right. Well, beer is good. Beer is good. <laughs> I, I think of like aligning the tape machine is kind of that way. You know, um, the more often you align the tape machine, sometimes it sounds Oh, sounds man. Better. I if if when i used to use tape i mean you align the tape machine to every batch of tape so yeah. you would buy 12 reels for a record or whatever and you know you had your tone reel and it was for that batch and if you bought another batch of tape you know so and you always were checking alignment and and now it's like people align their machine once a year it seems like well, now they might turn it on once a year. Yeah, exactly. It's like a lost art. Like, if you're going to have tape, it's not an effect. Well, I guess it is, but do it right. Yeah, make it sound great. Yeah. Well, so, you know, in the computer world, there's less of that stuff to do, or it's it's become things like manage your hard drive space and, you know, don't junk up your system drive with too much stuff. Yeah, Things mm-hmm. like that, um, update or don't update. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then what about monitors? What do you like to use for mixing monitors? So I like passive monitors. Um, uh, I don't like okay. having that self-limiting that a lot of those have, you yeah. know, protection circuit. So um, I have the Pro-Ax on... Yeah. Um, Modified um, uh, phase linear 400s, the flame linear. Um, cool. I really like how they sound. Uh, and uh, then I have Harbeth 7E3S, I think they're called, which is another British. Um, they're sort of more British hi-fi. And um, then I have for bigs, I got... Um, the B&W 801. Oh, yeah. Those are big honking things with a um, a turkey drumstick on top of them, right? Yeah. And it's the older ones. They're, I think, the Series 2. Um, yeah, sort of more squarish or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not made of diamond dust. <laughs> <laughs> um, could, could somebody and then what about uh, the amp so then you also have to choose a, a good amp to go with your speakers uh what what do you like to use yeah so that's what i'm saying like so the pro x like i've i have i kind of did a shootout years ago you know and i had uh all sorts of stuff and i ended up really liking these phase linears with the you oh, do I'm this sorry, that was the amp my bad yeah that and that was the rest of the speaker name <laughs> no it was uh it, and there's this mod from White Oak Audio where you put in these um, bigger caps, and it's like it just 
makes the bottom nice and tight and um uh yeah they're really cool and then on the um uh bmws i have uh the adcom 555s okay um and then do you like to use a subwoofer or you have any no. feelings about mixing with a sub i'm not into subs but your records sound great man how how <laughs> I have a sub going, so I should get rid of my sub then if I want to make great sounding records. <laughs> if it makes sense to you, that's all that's important, it, right? It, speakers, another highly subjective thing. Yeah. All you have to do is have a relationship with them. Yeah. Um, um, do you like to listen loud in the st- in the control room, or do you listen quiet? Do you do you what do you say about that? Um, if I'm mixing, I'm not super loud. I mean, I, I move the volume around, um, but when I'm balancing, I'm not loud because, you know, when you're loud, you know, you hit the Fletcher Munson thing where you, you just yeah. sort of lose resolution. So a lot of times I'm actually listening kind of quiet and just working on the balance and getting it to sit. Which and then, on, the, on the pro axe typically? Yeah, on the pro axe. And then um, I don't really do... Like the 801s, I know when I'm done, but I don't use it to mix really. I just listen to my mix when I feel like I'm done and I'll pop it over there and I'll go, oops, not quite yet. And then I go back to the Pro X. And then the Harbiths, I kind of just use to, It's I have a relationship with them and I just, I really can't intellectualize what I, I just listen to them. And do you do you also do like a like a little mono speaker like one of those um, Oratones or Vontone mix cubes or any of that kind of stuff? I will just flip the Pro in mono. Okay. Um, let's see. What else do I want to ask you about that? Uh, I guess the eight hundred ones would probably give you a real enhanced sense of bass when you put them up there. Yeah, and you know. My room is that my room is not big, and so basically, I'm my listening position is almost at the fifty percent spot. And you know, you always want to be in the thirds of a listen of a room right. for the list. You know, I'm almost in the node, but I kind of know it now. But so what I'll do when I check the bass is. I'll flip the 801s and then I go stand by the the refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, I love. Well, it's an excuse for us to get our ass out of the chair too. Absolutely, yeah. Or I'll go sit back by the couch. I'll turn it up on the Proax and I go sit on the couch and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. cool. And that's an excuse to go sit on the couch. <laughs> Absolutely. And usually the beer is over by the couch anyway. Yeah, or it's on the way. Or it's on the way. <laughs> um, well, that's cool. Uh, what did I want to ask you about that? Um, I don't remember. I, you know, I started doing a trick the other on a record, which I'd never done before. And then I tried it. I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Where I put my, I, I mix on NS10s and I put my NS10s in mono. And then my, it's, I have a dangerous audio, you know, mm-hmm. a control knob. I actually forget what it's called. The uh, monitor ST or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it has a left and right mute. So I'm able to mute one of the speakers. So I'm really mixing on a single NS10 in mono. Oh, cool. And I don't, you know, it, that's, that's you know what? I have, good. 
Yeah, I should try that. Cause I it have, was kind of a fun way to do it. It was like less distracting, you know? Yeah, because I have a, um, the crane song thing, and I can monitor. I can, yeah, I never thought to do that. That's a good idea. I'm going to do that. Just get rid of one of them. Yeah. I, well, you know, I, when your next record comes out and it sounds even better, I'm going to go, shit, man, I had something to do. <laughs> <laughs> man, I'm good. Man, I'm good. Well, so I, I appreciate you being on Recording Studio Rockstars with us, Rob. Really awesome, man. I, I could just talk to you about this stuff for, for ages, and I'm sure everybody could listen for ages. Uh, but we've had you for two solid hours now, so it's time to uh, respect your time and let you go. Is there any th- topic that we didn't talk about, or is there an artist you're working with now that you really want to give a shout-out to or any anything like that? Um, I would say to um, you know, people wanting to do this, no, no, the rock stars. You got to say. Ro- oh, yeah, yeah. Say to the rock stars. <laughs> there you go. Don't be hung up on gear. Um, gear is awesome. And, you know, it can, it, 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 and maybe it can be um, inspirational, but don't let it be, don't let it hold you back. Like, oh, I need this to be better. Or I need that, and it'll. You know what? The most important thing is making a good record, and 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 like I was saying before, those things are about committing early, and and it's about performance, and that's how you make recordings that are meaningful, and when they're meaningful, um, it transcends gear. Yeah. I want to ask you something. So if you look around you and yourself in the control room now and you look around your studio, are there many things or very few things that you had way back when you made Mellow Gold for Beck and recorded Loser, which was a massive hit? So Loser, Mellow Gold was mixed on a Mackie 1604 and a Fostick Fostex quarter inch a track. I love it. <laughs> right. So it is not about the gear. Well, Mackie's are vintage now. Sixteen oh four is a coveted vintage piece of gear and it will be after this episode. That's for sure. Uh, but it, you know, there's uh trust me it is not about the gear. Yeah. Um, I, so what I had back then, I had a API lunchbox. Cool. So you had a good, and I think that's it is a good lesson because I have experienced that where I've taken a mic like an SM57 that I thought I knew, and then I heard it through a really nice preamp or a better than cheap preamp, and I immediately was like, "Wow, that sounds great." Mm-hmm. And you talk about using the the uh, Radio Shack PZM for vocals, but maybe but perhaps you were, you were running it through an API pre in your lunchbox. And even if you only had one or two, maybe that was enough to just sort of like really bring those sounds to life a little bit. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> or or no, but you know, maybe it didn't matter. Yeah. It made me feel good, made me feel more confident. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, it can be inspirational and all, but you know what? That I I really think that record was gonna happen no matter what. Yeah. And let's be honest, didn't Beck think your lunchbox looked kind of cool there when you guys were recording? 
I don't even know if he noticed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There you have it. I love it, man. Um, I do have one last question, although I feel like you just answered it. Uh, but I'll ask it again in case you have an, an alternate answer um, you want to do. So this is our hypothetical question. We're going to take the Wayback Studio Machine, and you're going to go way back in time, find young Rob, Sh uh, Rob Schnaff, and tap yourself on the shoulder. You turn around, and you're like, older Rob Schnaff with a great beard. What are you doing here? <laughs> and you say, well, I've come back to give you this one bit of advice. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the studio yourself one day, what advice would you give yourself going back to that time? Um, don't chase what it isn't. Be present for what it is. Nice. All right, well, that's good advice. I like that. I'm just going to ponder that. I'm not even going to ask anything more about it. <laughs> You know what? I just took your advice, didn't I? <laughs> but I mean, it's a bit. I. It's important to be present. Moment of silence, rock stars. To be in the moment, you got it. You know, yeah. because um, that's when you know something's happening. If you're yeah. if you're distracted by chasing some preconceived notion, you know, you're missing, you're potentially missing out on something. So it's great to be, it's great to be prepared and do your pre-production and blah, 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 blah. But you know what? Be present for what's happening because, it, and it's just like life. You make plans and then life tells you otherwise. You, you're prepared to make a record, maybe in a particular way, and you get into the studio, just listen to the song and yeah. follow what it tells you to do. I think that's great advice. And, and I think we always need to remember that the studio is a new instrument. You've, right. been, you've been preparing for the record with the instruments you had, but when you get into the studio and you, and you do what I, I always called it, building the machine, once you've built the machine... And now everything's, you've got this sound coming out of the speakers. It's a brand new instrument and you mm -hmm. have to play it by paying attention to this instrument as you do it. Okay. So not to belabor this and- no, Sorry, let's just keep going. We're over two hours now. I love it. <laughs> but so, and that's part of the commitment thing of, you know, if you're going to use three mics on something, you did it with a purpose, right? So- make the document that purpose. Like you have a balance of those three, they're making a sound. So put it to one track. So now you're committing to that sound. So now that you can react to that mm -hmm. and then you react to that in a particular way, that's your performance from reacting to this thing that you committed to. And again, now you have a document of that. What good is it if this thing with three mics on it is continually variable till the end. Right. Right. You're, you're not, you know, I try to ask that question on the podcast a number of times. And, and I'm, I think sometimes it doesn't always register. And that that's at the essence of the questions that I ask people when they talk about multi-miking something. And I ask them about like, do you keep that balance 
through the record. Literally, like if it's on three tracks of Pro Tools, are you messing with those three levels while you're working or do you commit to it? And I and I appreciate you pointing out that when you're fucking with the levels of your mix over and over and over again, it's like you're constantly changing this thing that you're creating. And and I guess that can work, but it can also really mess you up, can it? Yeah, well, it's like that. Also, you know, there's a there's a state of constant chaos involved now. Yeah. And even if it's not chaotic, it's there. And it's adjustable and you could always tweak and you could always and you you know never have to commit and you know you don't have to commit, but maybe you're committing and there's that thing. And then there's that thing times however many times you've done that. Yeah. That's a burden. Why do you want to carry that burden around? So make lots of commitments. Collect your commitments toward Collect. the end of a record. Yeah. And then guess what? At mix time. You're mixing. You're not deciding. Nice. Well, maybe you're uh, deciding that you like your mix. And that's it. You're deciding which beer to have. (laughs) That's right. Cool. Modelo's still good. (laughs) Well, Rob, thank you so much for being on Recording Studio Rockstars with us. From the bottom of our hearts, we really appreciate you being here. And I really enjoyed listening to all your records, and I'm gonna I'm gonna hold on to that Spotify playlist, Rockstars. I will include that in the show notes so that you can go check out Rob's records. I guarantee you're gonna enjoy them, unless you hate rock music and great recordings. And um, you know, there's stuff we didn't even talk about, like Guided by Voices, The Vines, um, just a lot of great records. Oh, and The Wigs. We didn't even talk about The Wigs. And The Wigs. And The Wigs, and many, many more. But um, thank you for being here. And I look forward to seeing you again in person. And when I come out to LA, I'll, I'll see if, if you don't mind. Yeah, hit me up. have a beer with you and come yeah. see your studio. No IPA zone. No IPA zone. Um, can you let the rock stars know how they can find you and learn more about you too, other than through the podcast? Is there, is there, do you have sort of an online presence that they should know about? Uh well, there's the Mant Sounds Facebook page. How do you uh, spell that? M A N T S O U N D S. Okay. I didn't know uh, how to spell sounds, so thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think there's a Mant Instagram as well. Mantstagram. No, it's Mantstagram. <laughs> Um, cool. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, again, Rob, thank you for being on the podcast with us. Look forward to seeing you again soon. And Rockstars, you can find everything we're talking about in the show notes. Just go to rsrockstars.com. Search for Rob Schnaff. That is S-C-H-N-A-P-F. Kind of makes you think of a cool little shot of something that tastes delicious. <laughs> Minty, right? Minty. Minty fresh recordings. That's right. There's probably a, some other Minty Fresh recordings out there, so that's... That's a label from Chicago, isn't it? Oh, that's right. Yeah, Minty Fresh. Yeah, I knew I was thinking of something. Yeah. Um, and uh, you rock, Rob. Thanks for hanging with us. You rock, too. We'll see you around the studio. Was that enthusiastic enough? <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was good enough, yeah. 
That's about, right. about as much enthusiasm as we could hope for after <laughs> two plus hours, and and you haven't had a um, a Modelo yet. No Modellos. Here we go. All right, man. Thanks, All dude. Right. right on. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's R.S. Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lyd Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.